Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining this chilly Saturday afternoon. I kind of like the idea of hosting these fairly routinely on a Saturday because I feel like a Saturday afternoon has an implicit connotation of like a casual chat. If people want to do a really serious dialogue, unlikely that they would schedule it for a Saturday. And this is the height of casualness in my estimation. Um, I wanted to first focus on a news development that is in accord with a lot of what I've been covering lately uh, that occurred this week, which got amazingly little attention when you really delve into the details because it actually is pretty incredible what transpired. Um, So if this affects you personally, uh, what I'm about to describe, or if you can think of any other examples maybe from your own uh, jurisdiction that are comparable, please uh, let me know because... I'm also working on a, a piece now that will make reference to it that you can read on, on Substack uh, shortly. Uh, but basically what happened was on January 11th, the emergency powers wielded by Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, were set to expire. Now, of course, like countless other elected officials in the country, he first declared a state of emergency slash public health emergency back in March of 2020. And then once uh, vaccinations started rolling in in the early part of 2021, there began to be a slightly increased clamor for maybe him considering that uh, governance by one man unilateral emergency decree was not the most sustainable option for evermore. Uh, So what happened was in June of 2021, Murphy brokered an agreement with the New Jersey state legislature, which at that point, uh, up until that point, had been effectively frozen out of any governing decision making uh, in terms of the actual kind of imposition of policy. I mean, it's amazing how just if a member of your own party happens to control the governorship, so many state legislators around the country are just willing to concede total discretion to them. Um, you see, even see this in, in Washington State, for example, where uh, Jay Inslee has been governing by decree for now approaching two years straight, and the only ones really seeming to give much of a hoot about it are the minority of Republicans in the Washington State Legislature. But I digress. In New Jersey, Murphy had this agreement with the state legislature, whereby the quote-unquote public health emergency would expire in July, right? But Murphy would nonetheless maintain a battery of emergency powers under a state of emergency that were was codified within individual executive orders uh, until this, this July, I'm uh, sorry, until this January, when the new uh, legislative session starts. So there was actually some pretty uh, savvy political logic there on Murphy's part, because what did he get when that agreement was announced? Well, he got headlines, which were kind of dutifully published across the New Jersey media anyway, 
saying that you know Murphy uh, declares victory in the public emergency in New Jersey is over. Well, I mean, that was technically true, but only in a very narrow legalistic sense, which is that the quote-unquote public health emergency, which confers a different set of powers, was, yes, technically rescinded. But Murphy maintained other emergency powers that enabled him to do things like continue to mandate mask wearing at all New Jersey public schools and daycares. Like, the only reason that rule remains in effect is because Murphy is continue, was continuing to claim emergency authorities to impose the rule. Uh, but this was in a re-election year for Murphy. He was coming up against a uptick in basically Republican electoral fortunes, as was seen in Virginia. And as it turned out, Murphy narrowly escaped losing uh, re-election in what a lot of people thought was going to be a blowout. But wasn't, and he was up against a very um, unknown Republican opponent who got m- minor, meager support from the uh, National Party, which chose to focus on Virginia. But anyway, Murphy got that favorable headline uh, in an election year that, you know, under his tutelage, the serious things were done successfully, and it led to a point where New Jersey could get rid of its public health emergency. Um, so, but nonetheless, from, from July of 2021 to January of 2022, Murphy still continued to wield certain emergency authorities, even though that one type of emergency had been expired pursuant to an agreement with the state legislature. Okay, so now, you know, Murphy wins re-election, January 2022 rolls along, and Omicron or as I call it, oh, come on, begins to be an object of major fascination for elected officials to feel that they have to, quote, do something. And so what happened effectively was that uh, Murphy was engaged in negotiations with the legislature to uh, broker a new agreement whereby he could extend the emergency powers that had been accorded to him uh, pursuant to the previous agreement. But that agreement didn't happen. Steve Sweeney, who was the um, Senate leader for the Democrats and lost in a fairly shocking upset this past November, he was on his way out and he hadn't really gotten along particularly well with with Murphy, even though they're both Democrats and uh, no agreement was reached with either the S- Senate or the Assembly. So what did, have, what did Murphy have to do? Well, his powers were going to expire on January 11th. So he had to do something, right, because he wanted to continue those powers. What he did was he contrived a rationale to declare a brand new public health emergency. So the same public health emergency that expired last July has now been redeclared in New Jersey such that Murphy, as of today, wields the same authorities that he had begun wielding in March of 2020, but then temporarily temporarily expired last year. Uh, And Murphy claims that he doesn't intend to utilize those powers to, say, impose new lockdowns or closures or things, the more drastic measures along those lines. But... 
he maintains the power to do so as of now. Like, nothing would stop him from doing that if he wanted to. Like, if he woke up tomorrow morning on a whim and said, okay, we're doing a statewide lockdown in New Jersey, he could do it according to the emergency powers that he has now once again resumed declaring for himself. So here's the real kicker, and here's the part that I think people should really be more mindful of and should have brought some media scrutiny, but really really brought almost none, so far as I could tell. Maybe it's because New Jersey is not a prominent enough state or something. I don't know, but, you know, it's prominent enough that you think this would maybe engender a little bit of uh, skeptical coverage. Um, so what happened was, so, so Mur- Murphy was in, in a bind, right? He had to, his uh, powers were going to expire, need to figure out a way to do so ir- uh, independent of the legislature. So what, what, do, what does he do? He says, look, Omicron is here. And uh, Omicron is the reason why these emergency powers now have to be extended indefinitely. And so on January 11th, when the powers are going to expire, he declares this new emergency order, says it's a public health emergency on the same magnitude as March of 2020. And how does he rationalize this? How does he justify this? Well, I mean, if you take a look at the actual text of the executive order, which almost no one does, and I don't really blame them, it's not the most exciting reading, but if you want to know what the government is doing, if you want to know the basis on which it is claiming it can exert dramatic new powers, then oftentimes it is worth actually taking a look at the text of these orders, if you can bear it. Um, So here's the, the clause in this order the new uh, public health emergency order that really gets to the heart of how Murphy was able to declare uh, himself these new powers. In the text, it says that New Jersey is experiencing, quote, the highest number of hospitalizations since the start of the pandemic. So the claim embedded within the formal legal text of this executive order was that as of this week... (laughs) In January through the 2022, New Jersey was undergoing the most hospitalizations since the start. So worse than that initial wave in spring of 2022, that 2020 rather, that precipitated the, the, the initial wave of lockdowns and so forth. Now, if true, if that extreme claim were true, a lot of people would understandably find it rather disturbing because... New Jersey did get hit fairly hard in that first wave of COVID. Like maybe certain aspects of it were sensationalized in, in hindsight, but you know, from firsthand experience, talking to people at the time, including people in the in the hospital system and so forth, yeah, there was a, a significant influx of new patients into the hospital system at that time, and it was a, a, a serious problem. Now, whichever way you want to kind of score it in terms of proportionality or severity of the problem, you know, that's up for debate, but it was a significant problem. And uh, consequently, New Jersey, for much of this entire process, had the highest uh, death rate for any state. So the highest death rate of any state was New Jersey, 
as a consequence of that first wave. And so, uh, as you might imagine, you know, the memories of that for a lot of people are still pretty raw. Um, you know, maybe they lost someone, maybe they had to deal with the, the nursing home situation back then, which hasn't been scrutinized nearly as much as New York, oddly, even though Murphy issued the same order, rough, uh, more or less, that uh, Andrew Cuomo did in uh, spring of 2020 that required nursing homes to readmit COVID patients and seems to have at least contributed in, to some extent to the, the spread of the virus in those highly vulnerable settings. Um, but whatever the, whatever the reason, you know, people uh, have a vivid, <laughs> at this point, recollection of the circumstances of spring of 2020 that uh, led to this uh, giant kind of uh, upending of the normal workings of society as a result of a threat that, we, that at the time was being presented as so profound that it required such a response. So in the text of the executive order that Murphy declared this week, it is claimed that the hospital situation today is worse than even back then, even during that dramatic period. So if you hear that, and Murphy's repeated that in his public utterances beyond the mere text of the executive order, but it's codified in the order, okay? So, again, if true, if you're just an ordinary kind of casual news consumer, maybe you think that concern with COVID is, is warranted at this point, but maybe you're I don't know, skeptical of certain governmental measures, whatever, just the median citizen. If you hear that, you'll think to yourself, gee, I didn't realize it was that bad. Maybe we do need to engage in restrictions on the order of what happened two years ago, and maybe the governor does need to declare a new public health emergency and wield these extraordinary uh, powers unilaterally. The, the problem is, this, that stat, I think one must conclude, is just phony, okay? Because even the New Jersey Health Commission officials who collect all this data and then kind of synthesize it so Murphy can repeat it. Even they, this week, upon light probing, admitted that on the very day this was declared, less than half, 49%, less than half of hospital admissions that are kind of bunched together in this COVID all-encompassing category, less than half had COVID as the primary diagnosis. But that information was not forthcoming if you look at the public rationale for why these powers were put in place, right? That had to be pried out of the relevant public officials. Uh, otherwise, it would have just been swept under the rug. So to their credit, journalists at one of these press conferences this week uh, did, did uh, ask follow-up questions about the kind of ratio between COVID as primary diagnosis or COVID as an incidental diagnosis in these figures that were being trumpeted. And yet, the text of the order remains the same. Like, the text of the order contains the claim that the hospitalization situation today is worse than in spring of 2020. It's a radically misleading figure. I personally followed up with New Jersey um, Health Commission officials, and uh, as of Thursday, they gave me a very similar kind of 
differentiation of the different types of COVID hospital missions. I personally heard from a very reliable uh, source at a New Jersey hospital that there was one of these emissions, one of these hospitalizations that was counted toward this total, okay, was somebody who went in for gallbladder surgery and then because every admittee gets tested then became a COVID hospitalization. That person who went in for a gallbladder surgery got counted as a COVID hospitalization and that gets lumped into this overarching total that Murphy cites to extend his emergency powers. And I know people will say that, okay, this is this has happened all along through COVID. You know, uh, this is nothing new. Where have you been? Get with the program. And I don't doubt that it's been true to some extent throughout the entirety of this. And maybe there should have, and you know, there there clearly should have been more attention to those differentiations in the nature of the diagnoses, uh, particularly for the purposes of public presentation, so people could kind of accurately apprehend the scale of the threat. Um, but it's, it's so much worse now because the main feature supposedly of, oh, come on, Omicron, um, is that it's extremely transmissible, right? Um, orders of magnitude more transmissible than previous variants or something to that effect, right? So in which case you're going to have a massively more incidental admissions than even in the past. And so for the New Jersey state authorities, foremost among them the governor, to come out and cite a stat like that is one of the most egregious hysteria-causing acts that I can recall since the outset. Um, Egregious because it's so uh, incongruous with what the current situation actually is. He exaggerated the number of hospitalizations per the admission of his own underlings by over 100%, all in service of enabling him to declare new emergency powers that he couldn't get the legislature to assent to. Now, that's pretty straightforward in its egregiousness, I would think. I would think that even if you're a massive COVID hawk, right, meaning you're somebody who favors the most restrictive measures uh, available to contain or to deal with COVID, I, I would think even you, if you're of fair mind, could recognize the incredible dishonesty of an act like that and the self-serving nature of, of an act like that. Um, you know, so Murphy says, you know, it, he also gave his state of the state address this week and he'll say stuff like, and by the way, I'm not just going to arbitrarily focusing on Murphy just because I happen to live in, you know, Jersey City. Uh, it, there's a very good chance, I think, uh, that he could seek to run for president at some point. I, I'm not sure. I doubt that he would be very successful, but wouldn't put it past him. You know, everybody seems to run for president these days if they can come up with any kind of uh, rationale whatsoever for why they're in the, uh, they could join the race. Remember, Bill de Blasio ran for president last time. People forget that hilarity. Um, so definitely a possibility that he will run for president. Um, down the line anyway. And what is this 
allow him to do? What allows him to continue basically ruling by decree for the foreseeable future? He actually used the word, the term foreseeable future to how, for how much longer the uh, mask mandate for uh, school, public schools and daycares will continue. Um, so that includes two-year-olds. You know, this is not just a right-wing meme. If you actually look at the manner in which this order is enforced, it requires two-year-olds, toddlers, to wear masks at publicly administered daycare facilities. Okay, so that's the policy now that is going to continue for the foreseeable future because Murphy was able to contrive this rationale for extending his emergency powers and do an end run around the legislature, uh, which is, which despite being controlled by his own party, was not willing to give him the new powers that he sought. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I see that and I think to myself, gee, if there was a, the New York Times, if it wanted to, or the Washington Post, if it wanted to, um, they could do an in-depth report on how that really constitutes a fairly severe abuse of power. And that could be a big political problem for, for Murphy. And yet, you know, there's no chance of that happening. We hear all about alleged power grabs happening among uh, Republican officials, uh, governors. You know, every time Ron DeSantis sneezes in Florida, uh, it's hyped as some kind of uber-dramatic encroachment on, uh, you know, liberty or something because he's instituting an authoritarian health health, uh, state. Um, And yet... I mean, this is one of the most egregious examples I can I can recall, and if you have another example, let me know in New Jersey. Um, and I'm not sure how much reassurance it gives to the parents of the toddlers who maybe are dubious that they need to be masked all day uh, when Murphy says, as he did this week, that it quote brings him no joy to continue that mask mandate. Well, joy or not, <laughs> perpetuating a policy on this basis, uh, really is a, I think, uh, just a ridiculous step at this juncture and ought to be identified as such, but it just won't happen because of the, the nature of the media climate and the nature of the incentives that particular Democratic politicians have to respond to. Because any criticism of this, whether it's the manner in which the new policies were declared or the rationale that was contrived or the actual impact of the policy, like the mask mandate for toddlers, etc. Any criticism to, along those lines could automatically be dismissed by somebody in Murphy's position as an inherently right-wing position. Inherently right-wing kind of rebuke. And that means that you're anti-vax. It means that you're maybe even an insurrectionist. It means that you're therefore pro-Trump, which uh, no longer seems to make much sense anymore because Trump is pretty ardently pro-vaccine himself. Uh, But nonetheless, you're kind of consigned to this melange of uh, insults that associate you with the most discreditable faction of society uh, by the lights of Democratic officials and and media uh, figures. And so questions along these lines just simply don't get asked or don't get probed nearly to the extent that they should. Um, and a guy like Murphy kind of skates away and 
is able to continue wielding these the same emergency powers that he first declared in March of 2020 as though we're in anything remotely like the same situation now, which even the state's own data suggests is most certainly not the case. Um, and, you know, so I even got a message um, a few days ago from a journalist who was telling me about another uh, COVID overreach uh, policy in a different jurisdiction. And the journalist was uh, very clear that I could not mention their name in association with my receipt of this information because they said that, you know, within their media milieu, um, default support for these measures is just the assumption and that if she were to deviate from that or he were to deviate from that, um, it would be a significant problem uh, and could compromise their job standing. Um, so, you know, that's just in miniature the dynamic that is replicated so uh, so many other places in society. Um, it doesn't matter how many times you declare yourself uh, personally pro-vaccine or say that you got vaccinated. It doesn't matter. I mean, if you if you challenge any virtually any aspect of a lot of this, uh, it's going to make you uh, inevitably tarnished as some kind of you know insurrectionist conspiracy theorist anti-vax uh, menace. Um, and that's how you know, Murphy ends up consolidating power in this fashion. Um, continues to rule by decree. And if you're comfortable with a permanent emergency style rule by decree for the foreseeable future, then something is off in your perception of how governance ought to operate in the U.S. Um, and just as a kind of a side note, you know, I named this Russian virus. It's just because there's also, the, in the backdrop, there's this push um, by at least certain people in positions of power and influence to uh, demand that the U.S. embroil itself in a an all-out war in uh, Ukraine imminently uh, against nuclear-armed Russia. And does that have a direct connection to what I, with what I was just talking about? No, but it's interesting uh, how certain uh, societal priorities get ordered just in terms of how, uh, how the public is told about them, right? Yeah, the Russia stuff is getting some attention, but you actually have former Obama administration officials who dealt with, for example, the U.S. government response to the uh, Crimea situation in 2014. Evelyn Farkas publishing an op-ed this week saying that the U.S. must assemble a, quote, coalition of the willing, just like it did against Iraq, um, to intervene militarily against uh, Russia and have a hot war in, in Europe. And she says if we don't, Evelyn Farkas does, it will lead to, it could lead to World War III. So, so okay, so maybe that's a fringe view, but this is certainly not a fringe figure. I mean, this was a person who was a Pentagon official in the Obama administration in the, the last time that there was kind of a diplomatic uh impasse on this uh, magnitude in Ukraine vis-a-vis Russia. Um, And I I think it's sometimes it's just interesting uh, to dwell on the comparative attention that certain items in the news get. I mean, 
even if there's a small chance that this could actually lead to World War III with the U.S. as a combatant, um, a small chance of World War III is kind of a big deal, um, particularly because the U.S. is already obligated um, essentially to Ukraine now as a co-combatant, or obligated, not obligated exactly, but the U.S. would necessarily be regarded as a co-belligerent in whatever war is forthcoming because it's for years now, under administrations in both parties, sent lethal weaponry to Ukraine under the guise of, quote, defensive armaments, which, please, I mean, if, quote-unquote, defensive lethal weapons were sent to a neighboring country of the U.S., does it really strain you that much to imagine how that would be characterized? Do you think that the defensive nature of those weapons would be accepted at face value by American elected officials? Of course not. So the defensive whole, the, the notion of defensive weaponry is a total misnomer. Um, uh, and so like, we're kind of just lurching into a situation that at least some people in positions of authority say could result in, at the very least, a war in Europe in which the U.S. is a direct combatant, and at most, World War III. <laughs> and uh, you have... Uh, you know, American politicians who, uh, you know, fixate on other matters. And so stuff like authoritarian... So, like, number one, Murphy's power grab this week ought to have been a major story. And the p- prospect of World War Three commencing immediately almost uh, should also be a major story. And both are kind of, like, down the priority list. Um, and... The infor- so the information kind of atmosphere that we exist in now does not seem to be really oriented toward uh, enlightening the public as to what is most significant, which is not the most uh, novel or profound point that anyone's ever made, uh, but I thought it was worth uh, reiterating here. Um, so if anybody has uh, any uh, comments, uh, happy to take your calls at this point. Um, if not, I will... Uh, continue to uh, rhapsodize about a related story, which is that if you're, uh, so just, you know, hand raise uh, if you if you want to do that. Otherwise, I'll continue for a while more here. Um, so per, along the lines of the emergency powers that were declared in New Jersey this week, uh, you know, clearly it's not just in New Jersey <laughs> where this is happening. Uh, as of today, Saturday, January 15th, you have two uh, major uh, cities, and I'll, I'll get to you in a second, Got a person who just uh, raised hand. Um, two major cities, Boston and Washington, D.C., have their new uh, vaccine passport schemes going into effect. And if you look at, as I, I tweeted this out earlier this afternoon, but if you look at the uh, Washington, D.C. website, where it kind of lays out the COVID uh, vaccine uh, policy, the, where you're going to have to provide proof of vaccination to enter into eateries or, or entertainment venues and so on, it says that the purpose of this policy is stopping the spread. Like, it's not even just we want to kind of coerce vaccinations uh, among the resistant or anything that kind of gets to what the real motive might be. Um, it still continues to at least maintain publicly that this is for the purpose of stopping the spread. And what do the emergency powers do in, in this situation? Well, it enabled, like, Mayor Mora Bowser in D.C. and Mayor uh, Michelle Wu in, in Boston to circumvent the ordinary deliberative process that uh, would have accompanied the enactment of a policy like this because they're doing it on emergency grounds. So nobody had the opportunity to ask Muriel Bowser, hey, 
Um, can you uh, please uh, point to any evidence anywhere in the world where such a scheme has been effective in curtailing transmission of the virus? Because there are mountains of evidence contradicting that notion at this point. In the U.S., you know, New York City, San Francisco, et cetera, have had these now for some, some, several months. Or abroad, you know, in France, Germany, et cetera. Zero indication that transmission has been curbed by these vaccine passport schemes. So if carbon transmission is not the real purpose, let's actually debate what the real purpose of these schemes are. And uh, then we can decide at, through uh, ordinary governmental process whether we want it to be enacted. But nope, that's totally sidestepped thanks to the invocation of emergency powers, which the media doesn't seem to mind very much, and it just kind of all proceeds unhindered. Um, okay, so I'm going to go to the person who just raised their hand. Just give me one second here. All right, go ahead. Hey, Michael. My name's Chris. Hey. Hey. Um, so... You know, the stuff you just were talking about is really interesting, the stuff in Washington and Boston. Um, you know, it's really not science-based. And at a time where we're, like, censoring people, you know, based on, quote, unquote, you know, air quotes, the science, um, it's just really shocking to see how this goes down when vaccinated people can transmit. It to What the science really seems to show is that the vaccine, and I don't even like calling it a vaccine. I think it's a, a procedure. It's like the flu shot. It's a shot. It might boost your immunity at best. It does not clearly prevent transmission. And so we're just kind of in, running into a, an anti-science thing. And it doesn't, and parading itself as science-based, which it clearly is not, as you as you said. Um so it's just really shocking to see this. And, and like you said, the stories that aren't the Ukraine thing and and this stuff in Jersey isn't getting coverage. I didn't know about this Jersey story you're just sharing until hearing it from you right now on this, on this call-in. And that's a big deal. And I didn't know that they had the forced, uh, you know, forced uh, taking COVID patients back into, into senior homes. Um, you know, obviously New York was focused on a little bit, mostly in in media adjacent places, mainstream media adjacent places. The mainstream media did a really small job covering that. So it just kind of all feeds into a narrative that makes it look like we're just we're. I don't know. We're. I don't want to be hyperbolic, but it's a little Orwellian. It's we're in the point of time where just do what you're told don't question and and that's that you don't have people are not allowed to have the power of critical thought for themselves you know i saw a story and it's interesting it's complicated but there's a father in canada who's uh hiding his seven-year-old daughter because the mom wants to give the seven-year-old the vax and he doesn't and you know she was going to do it on her own without his permission and so they're looking at him for kidnapping, and he did kidnap his daughter, frankly. But, you know, shouldn't both parents sign off on that, even if they're divorced? Um, it's really, I, I don't know. I think about this all the time, and I'm really kind of freaked out by the, the direction yeah, so, of the yeah, world so, over the last couple of years. Go ahead. 
Yeah, so I mean, one thing you learn when you have any kind of inside perspective on how news narratives get generated um, is how incredibly arbitrary they often are, like in terms of what is prioritized. And actually, the initial success of like the Drudge Report well, is a testament to that. I get it's probably lost influence now um, compared to its heyday. Uh, but what what was the function of the Drudge Report? It didn't do original reporting. It just gathered news with a certain framing uh, that made it digestible and kind of connected it to a recurring kind of narrative construct. Um, and in doing so, kind of balked how news would have ordinarily been presented in more mainstream precincts. And... You know that's that that has broader uh, implications for just how news items get transmitted to the the wider public. It's it's often not straightforwardly fake news that is the problem. It's what gets emphasized, right? It gets, it's what becomes the dominant narrative. Um, so you know another great example of this, and it actually connects to to Russia in a way. Um, is yeah over the course of Russia Gate, like the domestic scandal in the U.S. or quasi scandal um, that was so sprawling and multi-dimensional and dominated U.S. politics for uh, years. Uh, often the problem was wasn't so much that quote unquote fake news was being purveyed by these mainstream outlets, Washington Post, New York Times, etc., CNN. It was that, like, the, the premises on which these outlets assumed that emphasizing Russiagate and its attendant kind of elements uh, was the number one priority, that created a fake impression as to its importance. So, like, on any given day, you know, I don't know if you remember, back in 2017 and into 2018, um, there would be days on which the New York Times and the Washington Post would sometimes have like three or four stories that were screamed about as supposedly being these world-altering blockbuster bombshells, right? And when you read the story, sometimes it would be reporting on uh, rec- uh, reporting on something that did happen, right? So it wasn't as if it was just t- entirely made up, but the, the narrative, the overarching narrative uh, kind of construct was made up or so wildly misleading that it should be kind of functionally regarded as having been made up, right? Um, and I, I think it's sort of a, a similar dynamic now. I mean, for one thing, the the fact that that propaganda really was pumped out so constantly over the course of the previous five years, I think is a factor in why there isn't really much alarm now at the prospect that's being hyped by a lot of you know, important people that the U.S. could soon become a co-belligerent in a war in Europe against a nuclear-armed power. Um, you know, I think that that kind of uh, priming of the American public through the domestic kind of uh, component of the whole Russia saga recently has had that effect. Uh, but it also, again, just gets to the distorted effects of narrative construction. And I'm not even su- suggesting that if I had somehow uh, omnipotent powers to dictate the 
national news agenda any given day that I would do it perfectly. Then maybe I have blind spots or what have you. Um, but that shouldn't preclude a skeptical analysis of how the people who do wield such power today, and it's often you know uh, dispersed, right? It's not like a concerted conspiracy much of the time. Um, but it's people kind of with the same kind of confluence of fallacious assumptions to present a certain narrative that is uh, oftentimes disinformative. And uh, it's hard to really, uh, I think, just kind of uh, repairing to the whole mantra of fake news and lying and stuff, um, or accusations to that effect, doesn't really kind of get to the core of, of the problem. That article, did you see that Rolling Stone article, quote, 270 uh, doctors uh, refuting Malone and McCulloch on, uh, on Rogan? Uh, yeah, they, yeah. And then I saw, you know, a retort from people that are adjacent to Malone, and they're like, we have 20,000 doctors on our side, so how about, you know, it's just, it's... 300 is not a very large number of doctors. If you scroll through their, their signatory list, a lot of them aren't even doctors. There's some, like, MPHs and, and uh, yeah, which are, like, health administrators. Yeah, <laughs> like, what, what, what? Which okay. I actually think are probably the least reliable people on Earth at this point, but... Totally. Totally. They're the last people I would want to be on my open letter demanding yeah. anything. It's it's just crazy. It's it does feed into the fake news narrative when you have people when you have articles like that. And yeah, I, I guess I, I just I just sort of encourage people to to be sort of uh, discerning in how they sort of characterize a lot of this stuff because you know if you're if you're kind of overzealous and say this is, this is like a fake, you know I think you're kind of missing the the, the potency of how. News or, or uh, you know analysis framed in a certain way kind of uh, gets gets communicated to the wider public. Um, totally. Well, I right, got to sign off. And yeah, yeah. Uh, Thank you. Oh, all right. Uh, let's see. Tom, go ahead. Tom, you have to uh, unmute if you're not familiar. Hey, can you hear me? Yep. How's it going, Michael? Uh, big fan. Oh, thank you. I- I was just uh, wondering if if you could comment about uh, two things. Um, One was this idea that the U.S. was never going to allow any country to kind of rejoin NATO that was formerly part of the Soviet Union and how people seem to kind of are completely ignoring that. I mean, I saw you had a tweet with uh, Antony Blinken basically saying NATO's doors were like wide open for anyone who wanted to join. And um, the other thing I was wondering, kind of completely different, but you could comment on was, did you see about this uh, anti-vax or like unvaccinated tax they they imposed in Quebec? So. Uh, yes, I have seen that uh, Quebec item that you're mentioning, which is interesting. I mean, I was actually in Quebec uh, a few months ago. And they were sort of a forerunner of having a you know vaccine passport system, which uh, at the time I think was really only in effect in New York City and San Francisco, maybe a few other uh, cities at that point. Um, but this was you know province uh, wide, and you know 
you were in uh, in a situation where you'd have to present your proof of vaccine and ID even to get into like a food court in a mall, which I had to do, which is kind of like ridiculous, you know. But at the same time, I'm glad that you know. I, I think if you haven't experienced the like the process of actually complying with one of these vaccine passport regimes, it's worth doing it just so you can understand like what the mechanics are. Because oftentimes it's more like comical and stupid than like overtly tyrannical as in terms of how you experience it because it's like a security guard standing at a food court that's roped off checking ids and, and vaccine passport cards i mean it's just uh, sort of amusing in a, in a way even though it does have some more uh nefarious i would say implications for civil liberties and such um so i have seen that it's also interesting that my my understanding of the quebec government and i'm not a friend native french speaker so sometimes i have reservations about like the about how comprehensively I can really comment, even though I had I, when I was in Quebec uh, earlier uh, last year, and um, even a little bit ever since, I've, I've try- tried to follow some of the coverage. Uh, I think not being a francophone myself maybe limits my understanding of certain issues. But like for when I was there, the Quebec government, which is a conservative government as far as I know, or at least conservative per the standards of Quebec and I guess Canada maybe more uh, broadly, uh, they were pushing simultaneously uh, to the, the, you know, the COVID stuff, they were pushing uh, uh, the most far-reaching bill in generations, or maybe, you know, a generation or two, that kind of solidified the primacy of the French language in Quebec, which is kind of a conservative, per Quebec, a conservative uh, objective, meaning you want to preserve the uh, I don't know the sanctity or the purity or something along those lines of the, the French language and it's also its uh, primacy and in, in legal proceedings and kind of commerce and all that. Um, so it's anyway. I guess the the point I'm making is that a a, a government which is on the one hand pushing uh, initiative cultural initiatives that are associated with conservatism in Quebec is also extremely zealous in pushing initiatives like taxing the unvaccinated and um, they you know instituted a lockdown on Chris on a New Year's Eve <laughs> so it came into effect at 10 p.m. on New Year's Eve uh, which was it's almost like they were trying to be the biggest party poopers of all time in <laughs> imposing this particular lockdown um, and, and so I guess you know just the, the thought I have on that is that it Often is worth looking at how different countries and different societies talk about a lot of issues, uh, talk about these issues, because it scrambles ordinary partisan assumptions that we make in the U.S. Um, and even this was, I think, operative in the first phase of the pandemic when I would be hearing, you know, cons- uh, liber- you know maybe libertarian-oriented conservatives uh, in the U.S. or Trump supporters or whoever saying that lockdowns are inherently kind of leftist or something. And it's just like, okay, so you know, maybe you're against lockdowns and maybe they're a good idea or not. But I don't know how you say that they're inherently a leftist if, for example, like Modi in India is imposing an extremely harsh lockdown. Netanyahu in Israel is doing a, a massive uh, lockdown. Um, uh, Duterte. Uh, he had one of the most extreme lockdowns in the entire country and uh, schools were shuttered uh, for, I think, longer than almost any other country. Um, And, you know, Duterte was seen as 
uh, you know, the Filipino equivalent of, of Donald Trump, at least in some of the more lazy uh, media analysis from, from Trump's term. So I, I think, you know, it, it is worth uh, pondering how, you know, the way this has worked in different countries is not really uh, neatly congruous with kind of the partisan sorting um, in the U.S. Uh, and in terms yeah, of the... Can, uh, can I uh, interject? Yeah, quickly? yeah. I think Glenn Greenwald often bring up like uh, the Mexican president and saying and um, who's that uh, popular guy on the left, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. and saying how they're kind of you know skeptical of these vaccine mandates and how in the U.S. like often the left thinks you know like they don't really look at what the uh, what the global left is thinking always. So. Yeah, I think I think the 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 U.S. left does tend. I mean, even though <laughs> the pretension of the left, at least historically, has been that to be at this international kind of solidaristic uh, movement, right, to oppose global capitalism. But it does seem like the U.S. inflected left is fairly uh, myopic about stuff like this. I think that actually sort of explains why, or gets to why, like uh, Max Blumenthal, for example, has been pr- more and more strident. On a lot of these passport slash surveillance um, initiatives from a, a left wing perspective, meaning he's a, a reporting critically uh, on them, uh, I think that uh, probably derives at least in part from his focus on on covering kind of left wing governments elsewhere in the world, and uh, not just having a strict American focus, which I I think yeah, I, I even at times uh, suffer from because you know. Unfortunately, most of my uh, attention on a daily uh, basis is directed at my own country. Uh, so that kind of necessarily creates some some blind spots or some uh, analytical gaps. Um, but yeah, I mean, you mentioned um, the Mexican president, uh, AMLO or Lopez Obrador. Even just a week, I, this week I tweeted that he did like a press conference, right? He does these daily press conferences, including one with that Jerry McCorbin, as you alluded to, uh, attended recently. Um uh, but anyway, uh, o- Lopez Obrador had a, one of his daily press conferences this week where he was talking about Okamon, and uh, he basically said that he likened it to a cold, and he said, you know, don't get tested unless you're having uh, severe symptoms. So totally different from the messaging in the U.S. where, like, everybody is being instructed to get testing, get tested, you know, like, I don't know, 12 times a day, um, whether or not you have a sniffle. Um, and also, on top of that, Obrador, uh, Lopez Obrador, uh, requested, I don't know if he mandated it uh, necessarily, but at least the, the, the guidance from the Mexican government is that employers not require that uh, workers get tested in order to come to work. So he's actually kind of uh, giving the impression of a pro-worker stance that does – that frees them from the obligation to be constantly testing uh, themselves. And so, again, that just f- flies in the face of a lot of what the uh, the narrative is in, in the U.S., and I think it's worth being cognizant enough. I mean, just to uh, touch briefly on your, um, your Russia uh, question, you know, I think, you know, there, there's the, the, the point is often made that in, in 1990, was it, uh, the U.S. government, uh, or, or uh, James Baker anyway, who's the Secretary of State, gave an assurance to Gorbachev that the U.S. would not seek to expand further uh, eastward uh, or expand NATO further eastward. And then, you know, NATO then did expand 
I think four times in the aftermath of that, um, in, you know, in contradiction of that assurance. I've also seen the, the counter argument from from others that like uh, that Russia agreed to uh, different uh, arrangements whereby the possibility of NATO expanding eastward was uh, left open. So I think you can kind of quibble with the, the historical details there. I think the more important point today is why is the U.S., including uh, as expressed by Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State today, why is the U.S. so hell-bent on uh, preserving the option of endorsing the expansion of NATO into Ukraine when it doesn't seem to be have any appetite to actually do that. I mean, it doesn't seem to have any appetite to actually bring Ukraine into NATO. Um, it's not like that has been pursued formally. Um, so why why is the, the clinging to the prospect of that such of such paramount importance to the U.S. that they'd be willing to uh, become a co-belligerent in a forthcoming war that? Who knows how it could potentially escalate um, and uh, draw in more forces and, and whatnot. I mean, why is that the priority? The one, the one thing that I wish more journalists would do when they have an opportunity to question somebody like a Blinken or anybody else who's making grandiose claims about how involved the U.S. should be in a Ukraine conflict is to start from first principles. Like, So, like, what is the first principle uh, on which your claim that the U.S. has a profound self-interest in getting involved in this conflict uh, rests. Like, wh- why is it such a major priority? How is it in the American self, the U.S. self-interest? I, I, I think that should always be the first thing to be explained, that, that is demanded to be explained by these officials who are demanding essentially U.S. intervention. Like, are, do we now get to reassess whether it was sound policy to be constantly sending these monthly shipments of lethal, quote-unquote, defensive weaponry into Ukraine? Because wasn't the whole point of that that it would ward off a Russian incursion? What seems to have actually antagonized Russia (laughs) and perhaps made it more likely that an incursion would take place, which is always or so often the result of U.S. interventionism. It achieves exactly the opposite of what it purports to want to achieve. Um, you know, I mentioned yesterday that, I mean, does anybody recall in the first impeachment of Trump uh, what actually was supposedly the impetus for that? Well, it was that Trump temporarily froze shipments of these lethal weaponry to Ukraine. Yeah, it was a, the, that, the idea that this was a grave abuse of power came from him supposedly tying the aid, uh, the, the lethal aid shipment to um, action to investigate Joe and Hunter Biden. Okay, but like... The concept of lethal weaponry being uh, shipped to Ukraine was also widely depicted at that time as being itself sacrosanct. And that Trump was, you know, helping Russia or uh, betraying Ukraine by temporarily freezing that shipment, which, by the way, he didn't actually freeze for no shipment of those weapons was ever missed. Um, But he, he... Temporarily, you know, and that did like a procedural maneuver to, to freeze a shipment. Um, well, maybe it would, be, it would have been better off not to have sent, sent those shipments because now U.S. made weapons 
if a war were to commence, which I don't think is necessarily a foregone conclusion at all, despite how certain a lot of these quote-unquote analysts are, I mean, I don't know for sure. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not there. Um, it's possible, but um, should a war actually commence? Well, guess what? U.S. made provision, uh, weaponry, uh, and and uh, other provisions will be central to the conflict. And I don't know if you saw this, but uh, an article came out this week about a CIA-trained, um, basically, counterinsurgency uh, force, uh, Ukrainian counterinsurgency force that was trained in the U.S. Uh, for just this kind of eventuality. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I think the U.S. would probably not take a charitable or kind-hearted view if uh, it were in, involved in some conflict and uh, Americans were targeted militarily by forces trained and armed by uh, another country. I think that other country would end up on the receiving end of a whole lot of American consternation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the state of affairs, I guess. And in Russia, I, I, I guess, you know, from my limited standpoint, having not be, been fully briefed on, like, the troop movements and such in, in, in Ukraine, I guess just for the purposes of, like, domestic discussion of this issue now, I would just behoove, if I could, journalists to revert as much as possible back to first principles. Like, ask these people who are demanding intervention or demanding kind of hyper-involvement from the U.S. in one way or another to justify how such involvement benefits anyone other than, like, the military contractors or the diplomats who are invested in the whole kind of mythos around international norms and such. Like, how does the, you know, the, to use a cliche, like, how does the prototypical steelworker in Western Pennsylvania benefit from, from any of this? Um, because I think you'll find that if pressed on those grounds that the, um, the respondent will kind of devolve into incoherence. Um, all right, going to go to uh, Mateo. Go ahead. Uh, hey, Mike. Yeah, well, yeah. The, the first principles are obviously that uh, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons for assurance of territorial integrity, and that was violated in 2014 when Putin was upset at losing his puppet ruler, Yanukovych, uh, thrown off by the people who were disgusted at uh, Russian control of their country. And Putin's response was to invade and take uh, two proxy states, Donetsk and Luhansk, in the eastern part of Ukraine, and, of course, to take the entirety of Crimea. Whether or not he can get water to it, of course, is another matter. So I hope that explains it for you. Does well, it? Do you I, have I, met, I met first principles from the standpoint of how is it in the U.S. national interest? Like, how does the average citizen benefit by the U.S. committing itself militarily, militarily to the preservation of the territory? I can explain that one. Do you want me to Ukraine? explain it to you, Michael? Well, I'm, you sure, you mean, I'm sure you have an explanation for it. It doesn't mean it will be a convincing one. But no, yeah, it doesn't ahead. mean you'll absorb it. It's true. Okay, William Jennings Bryan, 110 years ago, quit as Secretary of State in disgust because he saw that the U.S. is being inexorably drawn into the position of an empire, and he thought that empires are morally disgusting. He thought the waterboarding that we did of Philippine rebels 120 years ago was uh, was disgusting. He wanted no part of the global equivalent of that, which, of course, is what the U.S. became at its worst under, like, the, uh, you know, the, the battle days or the peak of the Cold War, is that we were an empire 
We did do things like Operation Menu of bombing two or three million Southeast Asians, setting up the siege of Phnom Penh, truly, truly ugly, barbaric things, because that's what empires do, Michael. Now, that's a different moral question than uh, the, the response to when empires are in conflict is you have people like Tokyo Rose broadcasting to American troops out of Japan, demoralizing them by asking the very sensible question, what do empires benefit the people that serve the empires? What do empires benefit the soldiers, the common people back home? And of course, they don't. And that's why you use the exact same material as Tokyo Rose and possibly have a lot of the same goals. You use the same syntax. Oh, okay, I mean, that's an incredibly bizarre claim. To like in, uh, how is it bizarre? My you, syntax you, to Tokyo Rose? I mean... Isn't that uh, what you would I, say to the soldiers all day? Is What are you doing fighting here? Why are you a thousand miles, why are you thousands of miles from home bombing strangers when you really don't care if France or the Vietnamese people control France? Or, you know, Tokyo Rose, of course, was World War II. What do you care if the British or Japanese control some island thousands and thousands of miles away from you? It was a legitimate question from her, right? But her motives weren't weren't necessarily legitimate from our perspective, were they? Well, I mean, that similarity in syntax, as you allege, would only be relevant if the national interest, if the national, well, I mean, your syntax could be similar to any number of horrific people throughout history who don't like a particular empire and want to kind of contrive some kind of rationale for launching a war against said empire. But that doesn't mean that you are morally well, equivalent and, and, you know, in any in any compre- in any intelligible sense to somebody whose quote unquote syntax you happen to share. I mean I think that's an incredibly kind of uh, incendiary and, and uh, invidious claim that you made. But you know uh, nonetheless I'll let it you know stand for the time being. I would just say that you know the World War II comparison, I mean notwithstanding whatever potential comp- uh, similarities in syntax I may have with Tokyo Rose, which is, again, kind of a ridiculous claim in the first place. But um, it, it would only be relevant for the purposes of this discussion if the national interest uh, that the U.S. had in waging World War II was in, in, any, in any way comparable to the national interest that it purportedly has in uh, launching, becoming a combatant of war to preserve the territorial integrity of Ukraine. I think those self in, national self-interest calculations are drastically different. So that's why I keep getting back to first principles, which you didn't really address uh, in terms of your kind of whole theory as to the dangers It's not uh, a theory. Empire. It's basic history, Mike. Don't be silly. Okay. Um, well, thank you for joining. And uh, look, I guess mixing it up is fine there. I don't know how... <laughs> if that person was operating in particularly good faith if I get used to being Tokyo Rose because I'm wary or um, doubtful of the, the, that the U.S. committing itself to some sort of global war uh, precipitated by a conflict in eastern Ukraine is uh, in the collective self-interest. Uh, but, hey, not going to uh, begrudge anyone for having a go at me if they do feel strongly that the U.S. ought to be a combatant in a war on that ground. I mean, good luck going before the American public and making that argument um, because uh, I think it was circumvented, my question, that is, that for, for somebody who advocates this to explain how it benefits the average American citizen um, and the, the World War II analogy, I think, is ridiculous because the U.S. was already attacked 
and had committed to a global war against two expansionist uh, empires that would have potentially threatened to, you know, annihilate the U.S. itself. Um, all right, everybody. Well, uh, thanks for uh, joining in. Okay, we got one more uh, person. So let's go to Mary. Go ahead, Mary. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? Um, Good, just thanks. a comment on the Ukraine thing. I uh, distinctly remember at that time that our pledge to um, what. I guess it was Gorbachev, that we would not expand NATO much more than our pledge to uh, maintain the territorial integrity of Ukraine. But that's not why I wanted to call in. It was more a comment in what you think about going back to New Jersey and Mm -hmm. the sheer role of inertia and laziness in in their... um, sort of response to re-upping the authorization. Um, And, you know, I was a government employee, and I have to say that that has a lot to do with it. It's copy Mm -hmm. and paste. And then, you know, you think about it. And But frankly, I've just been baffled why Governor Murphy will not remove masks from two-year-olds. It's just incredible. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, he actually, when he was, uh, he actually kind of gave you an answer to that question. I saw this week in, in his uh, press conference when a journalist actually posed a reasonably good question to him, uh, which was something to the effect of, you know, why do you kind of assume that you have this broad mandate to govern unilaterally when the election results last November showed that at the very least, even though you won, you know, you won by a far narrower margin than what had been projected. So doesn't that kind of suggest that there is kind of a pent-up frustration with the, the manner in which you've been ruling? And he said, no. He said, if anything, he took the election result as a, as a referendum on the wisdom of his rule, and he's going to be, quote, doing more of the same. Um, so that was his takeaway. And um, I think people can kind of... <laughs> contest that uh, political uh, presupposition on his part. But I think uh, on the point of inertia, yeah, I think you're incredi- uh, totally right about that. And I'd actually be curious to hear you expand on how you have observed inertia uh, functioning in that manner within state government. Uh, but in terms of COVID policy, st- the, the, the renewals of the, these executive orders often, you know, depending on the jurisdiction, literally is a copy and paste. Just saying, you know, this was la- first declared March of 2020, it was renewed such and such date, and then we're renewing it again. And you have to do it every sometimes 30 days, 45 days, 60 days, whatever. But yeah, often it really just is a, a copy and paste. The, I guess the distinction with this renewal of the emergency order in New Jersey, or redeclaration of it rather, was that it wasn't just a pure copy and paste job. Because that, that uh, initial public health emergency was allowed to expire via legislative um, agreement in June of last year, they had to fashion a new one. So they had to actually write, meaning Murphy's counsel, he had to actually write a new order with new uh, rationales, one of which was, as I mentioned earlier, this claim about the hospitalization supposedly surpassing hospitalizations from the first wave, which is, you know, ridiculous in its massive exaggeration. Um, So this wasn't just a copy-paste job. A lot of 
these policies uh, do are born of inertia that is related to just sheer laziness and um, sheer kind of um, inability to kind of recalibrate or steer like the ship of state in a different direction. That that is often the the cause of a lot of the perpetuation of these uh, policies. But this was actually different, and that's, that's why I, I wanted to, to, to focus on it, in, in that it, it was ne- what uh, it necessitated the creation of a new rationale that wasn't just a product of sheer, uh, of sheer inertia. And that's why I, you know, I thought it ought to have gotten more attention. But I don't know if, Mary, you want to uh, follow up. Um. It is interesting that they did go through that. I think that uh, Justice Sotomayor's comment uh, about the number of children hospitalized just kind of goes to show that uh, there's a sheer lack of intellectual curiosity, too, as to re-verifying numbers and what's actually happening on the ground before um, going through and... And, you know, for example, you find out that, oh, it's much less, you know, less children are hospitalized and you try to float an idea up. And then somebody who doesn't know anything, who's a political person, will tell you uh, no. And that's kind of it. And you decide it's not the hill you want to die on. Um, And, you know, it's just really sad because my experience has always been that government's reactive and it will not, it's fearful, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better word. Nobody's going to step out. And which makes me fear that we're going to be in these pandemic, um, you know, the current restrictions for at least two more years um, because nobody's going to have the courage to say, hey, it's time to recalibrate. Yeah, I mean, I think if there ha- there are states in which emergency powers have been rescinded, um, whether legislatively or through the individual discretion of the governor, like that happened in Kentucky, for example. Um, but because American government is such kind of a, uh, a complex mishmash of different jurisdictions, uh, it's almost impossible for that to happen on a nationwide level, right? So you're always going to have places like Boston or Washington, D.C. or some of these other, other cities that have really no incentive, uh, apparently, to rescind these authorities uh, and others that, that do. And I think, you know, one thing that makes the New Jersey example especially pernicious is that it's true, and as Murphy suggested when he uh, made this declaration that most residents of the state are not going to perceive any difference in their lives uh, on account of the powers being extended, right? It's not like he's at least claiming that he's going to be instituting new lockdowns or other more draconian measures. But nonetheless, he does wield enormous powers by dint of this uh, extension. Um, So, but, but because it's not front and center in the kind of ordinary lives and individual perceptions of citizens, there's not going to be as much scrutiny on it. Um, so uh, even though it's more subtle now, um, it is uh, just a continuation of this rule-by-decree uh, method of, of governance that, that Murphy has a kind of concocted a, a means by which to to continue on the, the path of. So, 
All right. Uh, well, uh, thank you for that, Mary. And uh, thank you, everybody, who tuned in or called in. And uh, we'll do it again soon. So have a nice day.